I want to jump right into it here. Um, if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Luke chapter 10, and that's where we'll begin our, uh, our talk this morning. I'm going to talk to you about something that we're going to kick off here for the, the, the last part of the year. Um, historically, our church has done something called Love Austin. And Love Austin has been an event where we all get together on the same day and we go out into the city and we do all kinds of really good projects that help people in need and serve with organizations or ministries that already operate in the city. And I, I think it's always a, a really wonderful event. And we've decided to take a little different tact during uh, this year. Um, and, and so we're, we're doing something called Love My Neighbor. And for the, for the last a part of the year, we're going to make Love Austin a little bit more sustained and a little bit more personal. And we're going to challenge each one of us, all of us together as a church, are going to be challenged to get to know our neighbors in a great, to a greater degree and to make investments in our, our neighborhood. So uh, I'm going to talk to you about that today. And so the title of the talk today is Love My Neighbor. And uh, so as you're um, getting your scriptures there together, uh, Luke chapter 10, uh, let me pray. Father, thank you for the word of God that it is profound, it is revelatory, it, there, is a, there is something that as we read it comes alive when your spirit is energizing it, when your spirit is here. And so Lord, we invite you, Holy Spirit, give us illumination, give us understanding, and give us grace as we read it and study it. In Jesus' name, amen. So you have your message notes. You've also got another page here uh, that says, My Neighborhood Nine. And I want you to get that out and just have it near. Uh, if you don't have one on your seat that you came in, and um, uh, then you can get one out of the seat back pocket. I think it's there for you. There's an extra one there. And so everybody get that out. I just want you to have it near because uh, we'll deal with it here in just a few minutes. You know, I have known a lot of smart people. And I, these, I think smart people, intelligent people, have a capacity to understand complex problems. They can explain them. They can understand them. But I think there's another level beyond smart. I think there's a genius level. Genius level. Right? What happens when you're a genius? Geniuses make complex problems simple. They know how to take them. They not only know how to explain them, they not only know how to, how to understand them, and, and they, they, they know how to make them simple to actually solve. And so there's a, there's a thing that happens when a, when a genius gets a hold of something. Um, you know, you, you, they don't simplify the, the, the solution as much, or simplify the problem as much as they magnify the solution. They make the solution bigger. And so brilliant people know how to, know how to do this. And I, I want to I ask you a question. What if Jesus is a genius? <laughs> you think Jesus is a genius? If genius is a genius and he knows how to take something really complex and, and bring it down to a really simple solution, I think we should do it. Tradition 
tells us that there are roughly 613 commandments in the Torah. 613 commandments. I think 365 were uh, sort of negative commandments. In other words, don't do this. 248 were positive. In other words, do these things. 613 commandments that the Pharisees and other religious experts tried to make sure that people were obeying by creating other rules <laughs> and ideas that would measure whether or not they were doing it. For instance, uh, the, the commandment of the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath day. Well, you can't do any work on the Sabbath, so how far can you walk before it becomes work? Well, they would measure that, and they would start to enforce that. Um, how much could you lift, or what could you, what could you do, what could you not do? And this is, this is another realm of, of commands and things that would, that would be um, instituted to try to figure out how do we make sure we obey all these commands. Jesus, amazingly enough, boils them down to two. Matthew chapter 22 Verse 35, look what he says. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. So Jesus is having an encounter with some religious experts. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. The second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 40, really profound. You should take your pen and you should underline it. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All the law and the prophet hang on these two commandments. Now, we could ask ourselves, was Jesus just being metaphorical? Was he just saying some nice things? Was he telling nice stories about neighbors? in order to help, help us just get a, a point of view about how we should be neighborly? Or was he actually on to something? What if the solution to all of society's ills, what if the solution to our concerns in our culture could be solved by just doing a couple of things really well? What if the solution to crime and poverty and difficulty, violence in our neighborhoods, what, what, what if the solution was as easy as just loving your neighbor? What if it was just that simple? Luke 10. Go there and we'll read a, just a brief portion of this story. We won't read the whole thing, but, but we'll read a portion of it. Here is a sort of a different encounter that Luke record, records. And in verse 25, Luke 10, 25, Luke says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Oh, that's really almost a better question. What do you do to inherit eternal life? It could be that this is a different exchange in this this. Uh, this religious expert had heard what Jesus had said. Or it could be this is just another angle on the story, but it says, verse 26, what is written in the law, Jesus says, he replied, how do you read it? If you have your pen, you should underline that little phrase. How do you read it? How do you understand it? Because truly, how we understand what Jesus is saying in the scriptures 
should have a profound effect on our lives. And how we read it is really important. If we think he's just being nice and metaphorical, then that's a problem. But if we think there's truth here that when applied will actually change our lives and other people's lives, well, it makes a huge difference. Verse 20, 28 says, uh, or verse 27, he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus replied, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. If you do this, you will receive eternal life. There will be something that's so good for you. Your life will change. Abundant life will begin to, to take over. But then verse 29 comes. But he wanted to justify himself. The Amplified Bible says he wanted to acquit himself. When it says he wanted to acquit himself, that impl implies he might have felt guilty. He was a religious expert. He was, a, he was a, a lawyer finding a loophole. He was trying to find a loophole, and so he says, he asked Jesus, and who exactly is my neighbor? Essentially what he was saying is, who do I have to love are there people that I don't have to love? Could I qualify them as non-neighbors? <laughs> Who actually is my neighbor so that I can get this? I mean, he did it under the guise of wanting to get it right, but probably it had something to do with excluding people. Knowing our neighbors is a big deal. I, I've had a lot of neighbors throughout my life, and I, I've had some exceptionally bad neighbors. Have you had any bad neighbors? Yeah, I had, I, had a, I, had a, I had a neighbor when we moved into a new house in Colorado Springs one time. I, I, I won't give you their real names. Let's call them uh, Deanna and Butch. <laughs> but it was a new house, so we had to, you know, it's kind of the whole relationship started with the fence because we've got to build a fence between our properties. And so, so we start trying to figure out how we're going to build a fence together. And uh, so I found, a, I had a friend who did this for a living, so I got him, and, and uh, so we started working on it together, and she was not happy. She made him tear down the entire fence after he had already started and rehang them because of the way they were, the way the, 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 the ground worked. And so it was, it was like, I, here's my friend, and I'm like, oh, this is really bad, and, and so... So then, then, she, then she started complaining about the drainage. You know, there's a drain between your houses and all the water that drains. And then she was complaining about my sprinklers. They were on incorrectly, inappropriately. She said that I killed her tree. I mean, listen, it, I, her tree did die. <laughs> but it wasn't technically a tree. It was more like a sapling. Right, it was like she tried to she tried to plant something there, and it didn't live. And then she blamed it on me, and so so I bought her a new tree, <laughs> trying to be a good neighbor, trying to be a good neighbor. And um, and so, no matter what I did, though, it never seemed to appease her. She was always mad. I would just come home sometimes from work, and I would see the shutters. 
she was always complaining about my children and how loud they were. I mean, I do have loud children. I mean, let's be honest. But she was always frustrated with them. And they learned to stay away from her house. <laughs> it was really sad. I hated it. And then finally, she, she ended up filing a complaint with the HOA and saying that we played loud music from our house. <laughs> loud music and cars every once a week. It was our small group. <laughs> we, we keep the windows open and sing and play guitar and the singing. And she, com she complained about that and wanted it shut down. This is a very, very difficult journey for our family. And we had to work. I mean, we had to really work hard to try to be friends with them. And they really didn't want to be our friends. But there is something that is so important for us to understand as the people of God, right? Is the, it's not about how they treat you. It's about whether or not we're going to obey the scripture. It's not, not about whether they're worthy of being a good neighbor or you being a good neighbor to them. It's about something else. It's about making an investment. I have no idea what happened to them because a few years passed and we, we tried to make it work, but I, it, it ended up degrading into this really weird thing. I would come home and if she was out there checking her mailbox, I would take one more lap around. <laughs> or I don't know if you've ever done this. Have you ever done that? Like a neighbor you want to avoid, you're like the fake phone call? You get out of the car and, yeah, yeah, mm hmm, yeah. Yeah, no. yeah, okay. And then you just go in the house. You guys have probably never been that sinful. <laughs> uh, my favorite is just, just wave and keep walking. Like, hey. Just, just, you're just on a mission. Most people, they just settle for the garage door. Garage door goes up, go in, garage door goes down. <laughs> I want to I ask you to consider this question. Could it be that Jesus has the solution for what ails our culture? And could it be as simple as loving God with everything we have and letting him own everything and to love our neighbor as we would want to be loved. So what's the problem? Here's a, most of our problem is time. This is your, on your message notes, this is the first, the first fill in the blank there. Did I skip one? No, okay. The first one is time. We have so much going on in our lives that we can't imagine adding more people to our already overscheduled time frame. That we, we, we overschedule everything. I want you to write that in your margin right there, overscheduled. Most of you are overscheduled. Most of you have so many things that you're trying to get done in a short amount of time that it doesn't work. And let me say that the driving force for this often is money. The driving force is money. Sometimes it's, it's family dynamics and wanting to make sure your kids grow up with every experience under the sun. So they have to be in Little League and soccer and hockey and basketball and football. No matter what the season, they, they have to be doing something. But it's driven by sometimes a need to keep up with the Joneses. Sometimes it's driven by money because I got to make enough money. But time is our problem. 
The other problem, second problem would be focus. How can we focus on our neighbors? How can we imagine we're going in so many different directions? We have so many things going on. When I go home, I don't want to focus on somebody else. I want to just, it needs to be my castle. It needs to be my safe place. Sometimes we're so out of energy that we can't imagine adding another person to focus on. Number three would be fear. We're afraid. We're afraid. Some of us are afraid of being rejected. Some of, us, some of us are afraid. In fact, a lot of Christians are afraid of being rejected. They're afraid of the reputation they have. And I mean, this happens to me a lot. Like, I, like if, if we have a, we, in fact, we just had a national night out in, in our neighborhood, and there was a group of people, so we went and we hung out with all our neighbors for a while, and I always wait for the question to come. So what do you do for a living? <laughs> I'm a pastor. <laughs> All right, thanks a lot. It's, it's, it's weird how it kills the conversation. So I have to find ways to, 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 to keep the conversation working. And, and so there's this thing. Sometimes we're afraid of what other people are going to think of us. Sometimes we're afraid that they'll influence our kids. I don't want those. Do you, do you know that neighbor boy? He's awful. I don't want him playing with my little son or my little girl. Sometimes we're afraid of that kind of thing. Number four is snobbery. Snobbery. We could call this selfishness, but I like snobbery better. Snobbery is thinking, I, I don't want to get to know those people. They're weird. They're strange. <laughs> They're dumb. I don't like them. Hey, hey, I got news for you. They may be thinking the same thing about you. <laughs> At the end of the day, these problems in relation to the calling that's on our lives, they must be conquered. Right. These problems must be conquered. We must learn how to make our time work, be good stewards enough of our time that we're actually willing to invest in someone else right? We have to focus our lives. We have to overcome fear. We have to be willing to associate with all who Christ might put in our path. And the truth is, your neighbors are actually your neighbors. <laughs> you can't define them. You can't be like the religious expert who wanted to, like, like who is actually my neighbor? These people who live beside you are your neighbors. <laughs> you can't get away from that. And could it be that God wants to do something there beyond even what you can imagine? All, by the way, all these same challenges, these same fears, and, and these same things exist here in this community too. People wrestle through them. Oh, do I really want to get to know that person? I really don't like this team. Oh, I don't like... What I want to challenge us to do is to treat one another as Jesus would want us to by honoring each other as important as neighbors. Most of us don't know our neighbors' names. No, most of us probably don't know all their kids' names. Sometimes we spot a hobby in the garage, you know, as we're driving by or, or something they're involved with as we see them leaving in the van for soccer. But we certainly don't know their worries or their concerns, their anxieties. 
But think about it. I think Jesus presents us with an idea, and that idea is almost every problem can and should be solved. Almost every problem can and should be solved relationally. Relationally. It's God's design and his nature to do things relationally. What you have, someone else needs. What they have, you may be in need of. Eggs, sugar, milk, a ladder, perspective, ideas. We receive and share these things, and as we exchange our strengths and weaknesses, now listen to me, as we exchange our strengths and weaknesses, that creates a bond. And the bond that begins to define our relationship, it begins to define our neighborhood. The question is, do you, are you happy with the way your neighborhood is defined right now? And as we begin to look at it, we have to understand that I think neighboring is more of an art than a science. Neighboring is more of an art form than a science. I know. And, and honestly, people in our culture, everybody's big on charities right now. Write the check, fix the problem. If we just write the check and fix the problem, we give up our calling. We, we, resist, we resist the calling that God's got on our lives to speak into another person's life. People will say the governments should do it, that we, we pay enough taxes. The privates, the business sector, the nonprofits, they should be doing this. They should crea uh, create solutions for our society's problems. Our culture tends to think corporately about social and cultural challenges, but I want to present to you the concept that personal responsibility and relational accountability may be all that is required to change large-scale societal concerns. It may be what Jesus intended when he just said, love your neighbor as yourself. I was in a meeting two years ago with all the leaders of Austin, like tons of city leaders, the mayor was there, all five superintendents of uh, school districts. Um, we had a demographer there who was showing us the neighborhoods and how they were changing and transforming before our eyes as people move into our city. And, and I'll never forget Art Acevedo, the police chief, and he sat there and talked to us for an hour. It was a room full of pastors, room full of church planters. And he, and he began to talk to us about the struggle that they have in our city and the crime rate, and he talked about how families are part of the solution, right? Because uh, dysfunctional families uh, create uh, these young people who are struggling, and, and our schools are part of the solution. But he, I, he said this, he essentially said, as he was communicating to us, he said, we need to teach people in our city to be better neighbors, to be good neighbors. We need to, we need to teach each other how to create community because when when crime goes when community goes up crime goes down when a sense of community and safety when a sense of responsibility and love happens in a neighborhood people feel safer people are less likely to violate one another these are the ideas that Jesus espouses here when he says love your neighbor. It's not just Christians who want a good neighborhood. Everybody wants a good neighborhood. Everybody wants a place where they feel safe. Everybody wants to know that they're cared for. Everybody knows that, wants to know that they have somebody else who they could go to in a moment of need, crisis. Everybody wants that. That's what we're trying to create in our neighborhoods. There's a story 
in this little book called David and Goliath. Uh, it's by Malcolm Gladwell, and I, I, really like, I really like this book. And, uh, and Malcolm Gladwell talks about, it's called David and Goliath. The subtitle is Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. And he talks about overcoming huge obstacles and how it happens over and over again. And he tells a story about uh, a neighborhood in New York City called Brownsville. It's on the east side of Brooklyn. And in the heart of New York City, as New York City was being cleaned up over 20 years, this neighborhood kept falling, lagging behind. Crime kept happening. There's 18 housing projects. 18 housing projects where people, where, where crime was just rampant. They couldn't get it under control. Young people everywhere, kind of young hoodlums taking advantage of people and mugging uh, passersby. It was just known for this. And so... <clears throat> they assigned a new police officer to this neighborhood. Her name was Joanne Jaffe. And she began to think about her neighborhood in a different way. And, of course, they, they, they we're all familiar with the kind of crackdowns that police have and, and, and they, you know, make sure that we're everywhere, make sure we can be seen, make sure that, that we know who the criminals are. Well, she started, she, it's her brainchild to start a program to know all of the lawbreakers in the past uh, one year, 12 months. So they looked them all up under a certain age. And they used, they used this age thing, and they came up with 106 people that were, that were responsible for 180 crimes. And her thinking was that most of them had done, you know, between 20 and 50 other crimes that hadn't been noticed. And so, um, so responsible for probably 5,000 crimes in that neighborhood. And so she started a program, and it was good. She called it J-RIP. Uh, J-RIP is a Juvenile Robbery Intervention Program. <laughs> and she started telling, okay, you're in, they, they met with each of these 106 individuals, and they said, you're in the program. <laughs> you're, you got no choice. <laughs> they would go and, and meet with them. They would find them. They'd say, look, we're, our goal is we want to know who you are, we know who your associates are, we know who you're surrounded with, we know your family, and we know we are going to be here. You can slam the door in our face, but we're going to see you on the street. We're going to know who you are. And it went along like that for a while, and, 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 they, and they essentially said, look, if you, if you, we, we want to help you with schooling, we want to make sure you're in school, we want to get, get you a job, we want to help you be successful in life, but if you commit a crime, you are going to jail for a long time. So she cracked down, and it went along for a while, but something changed one night, one Thanksgiving. And I want to read this from the book. She was obsessed, Jaffe was obsessed with the, from the very beginning with meeting the families of her Jay Rippers. <laughs> she wanted to know them. It turned out to be surprisingly difficult. In her first attempt, she sent letters to every home, inviting the families to come to a local church for a group session. No one showed up. Then Jaffe and her team went door to door. Once again, they got nowhere. We ended up going to each family, 106 kids, she said. They would say, excuse me, but um, this bad word, don't come into our house. They would slam the door in their face. <laughs> the breakthrough finally came months into the program. There's this one kid, Jeffy said. She made up a name for him, Johnny Jones. He was a bad kid. 
He was 14, 15 then. He lived with a 17, uh, 17 or 18-year-old sister. His mother lived in Queens, and even the mother hated us. There was no one for us to reach out to. So now, November of, the, of this first year, Dave Glassberg comes to my office Wednesday before Thanksgiving. He says, all the guys, all the people on the team chipped in, and we bought Johnny Jones and his family Thanksgiving dinner tonight. Now, she'd done really hard work to recruit police officers that were going to love kids. That was part of the secret. She's telling the story. She says, and I said, you're kidding. This, because she said, this was a bad kid. And he goes, you know why we did it? This is a kid that we're going to lose, but there are seven other kids in that family. We had to do something for them. I had tears in my eyes. And then he said, well, we have all these other families. What are we going to do? It's 10 a.m., Day before Thanksgiving, I said, Dave, what if I go to the police commissioner and see if I can get 2000 bucks and see if we can buy a turkey for every family? Could we do it? And she went upstairs to the executive level of police headquarters and begged for two minutes with the police commissioner. I said, this is what Dave Glassberg did with the team. I want to buy 125 turkeys. Can I get money somewhere? And he said, yes. Glassberg put his men on overtime. They found frozen turkeys and refrigerated trucks, and that night we went door-to-door in the Brownsville projects. We put them in the bag and, and did a flyer from our family to your family. Happy Thanksgiving. Jaffe was sitting in her office at the New York Police Headquarters in downtown Manhattan. She was full uniform, tall and formidable. She said, we'd knock. She continued, Mama or Grandma would open the door and say, Johnny, the police are here. Just like that. I'd say, hi, Mrs. Smith. I'm, I'm Chief Jaffe. We have something for you for Thanksgiving. We just want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving. And they'd be, what is this? And they'd say, come on, come in, come in. And they would drag you in, and the apartments were so hot. I mean, and then Johnny, come here. The police are here. And there's all these people running around hugging and crying. Every family. I did five of them. There, were hugging, there was hugging and crying. And I always said the same thing. I know sometimes you can hate the police. I understand all that, but I just want you to know as much as it seems that we're harassing you by knocking on your door, we really do care, and we really do want you to have a happy Thanksgiving. I want you to notice what happened here. Number one, they started acting like neighbors instead of policemen. They, st- they, started, act- they started acting like neighbors, started being interested in those kids. Then they did something specific for them. Now, here, here was the problem. They needed to get money from somewhere. <laughs> so they had to go find, like, can I, can I suggest to you that it's a lot easier to buy one turkey for a neighbor in need than it is for the city to buy a thousand? Try to, try to disperse them? I mean, f- to me, this, ho- these housing projects, it is, it is a, a, a problem f- that there was no Christians there to help those families. Right. We have to be those people. We have to be the ones. And it doesn't have to be this huge, grandiose thing. It's going to be as simple as, as purchasing something that they need and sharing it with them. So here's how Jesus made a complex problem simple. He says, love God and love people. Here's how that works. Here's what you'll have to do if you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. Ready? First thing you've got to prioritize. Prioritize. You're not going to be able to do it unless you be intentional with them. You're going to have to say no to some things and yes to, some other, so to, to your neighbor in order to be intentional. Hey, 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 hey. We all have the same amount of hours in the day. You don't have more hours than me. I don't have more hours than you. 
We all have the same amount of time. The question is, what are we doing with them? And so we have to be God's people that are going to prioritize our time according to the scriptures. Number two, simplify. Simplify. In order to prioritize, you're going to have to simplify, which means you need to see all of life through these two commands. What are, you, what are you going to do with your life? What are you going to spend your time doing? So many things. We're going all over the place. Our focus is not there. We're not focused on anything. We're just, we're just a, a mile wide and an inch deep because we're doing all this stuff. Simplify. Focus your attention. Hey, you need to be part of this community, and you need to be part of your neighborhood community. You've got to go to work. You've got to care for your kids. You've got to see the whole world through the lens of these two. How are you going to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? What's that look like? And how are you going to love your neighbor as yourself? Your actual neighbor, not your metaphorical neighbor of the world. Number three is synchronize. You'll have to, you'll have to, you'll have to understand that God wants you to love him by loving people. Oh, I just saved you some time. <laughs> You guys didn't catch that, did you? It's just like, you love God by loving people. When you look, First John, First John, chapter four and five, it talks about this, and it says that you, when you you learn how to love God by loving people, and people learn that they're loved by God by people loving them. And you can't hate people and love God. That doesn't work. It doesn't work. You have to love God by loving people. Number four is surrender. Surrender, which means you'll have to grow up. <laughs> You've you got to spend time with people you don't necessarily like. And, and by the way, this growing up process happens, I think it happens when we're willing to lay our lives down for our neighbors that we don't necessarily enjoy. You know what that does to you and to me? It builds our character. It grows us spiritually. We start growing up in the Lord because we're willing to lay our lives down for someone else. And that's easy when you really love them and care for them. It's a little more difficult when you don't really like them. But it creates maturity. And so I think character requires community. You have to have community in order to build your character. Character doesn't grow in isolation. It happens when you interact with some other people that, that force you into living like Jesus told us to live. So we grow when we love our neighbors. It's, it's not just something you do for them. Something happens to you. You begin to grow spiritually when you decide you're going to love your neighbor. Now, there's three phases, all right? So we're going to talk. If you want to read up more about this, this is a book called The Art of Neighboring. The Art of Neighboring. This is a fantastic book, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna work through it next year with, hey, this is a really cool idea. We're going to work through this book next year with a whole bunch of churches across the landscape of Austin. And it's going to be a really cool thing. But listen, we get a jump on it because I think this is where we are as a church. And making sure from now to Christmas, we're going to send you one thing a week. We're going to send you something in your email. We're going we're to announce it on Sunday. And we'll say, okay, here's what we want you to do in your neighborhood this week. You can choose it or you can choose something else. But we're going to have three different kinds. Here it is, three stages. Look at them. The art of neighboring, the framework is stranger, some of you are strangers with your neighbors, others of you are acquaintances, some of you actually have relationship with your neighbors, 
strangers, acquaintances, and, and, and relationships. And we're going we're gonna to identify one thing in each category that you can do to move it along the scale, to move from stranger to acquaintance, to move from, from acquaintance to relationship. Your first assignment is to take my neighborhood nine. Take your neighborhood nine and you start knowing the people around you. You start understanding. Now, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to go to your neighbor and take your pen. Hey, uh, could I have your name and your children's names? Uh, could I write them down? And just, you become the creepy, weird neighbor. All right, that's it. Yeah, no social security numbers, none of, none of that. So, so but, but what, it's simple enough to lean over the fence and, and, and to say, hey, I, you know, we're tr I'm trying to be a little more neighborly. I just want you to know, I, if you need anything, please don't hesitate to ask. Here's my phone number, and uh, my wife's name is Amy, and I uh, would love for you to, and if, if you need anything, we want to be available. Now, tell me, your, tell me your husband's name. What's your husband's name? What, and your kids, what's, what's their names? Oh, yeah, okay, all right. It's as simple as just having a conversation and learning a little bit about them so you can begin to pray for them. That's all we're talking about. That's all we're doing. And then as, we, as your relationship grows, you're going to have opportunities. So you don't have to win them to Christ, disciple them, and send them to the mission field by Christmas. Okay, the pressure is off for that. Okay, that's not what I want you to do. Some of us are uncomfortable with just being neighbors for the sake of the kingdom of God in our lives. Well, sometimes we think we, like, like I, I, I was reading about um, in, in a book, they were talking about, in this book, Art of Neighboring, they're talking about the ulterior motive that sometimes Christians have and the ultimate motive. And your agenda, if your agenda is always to get them to accept Jesus before they're ready or before the Holy Spirit works enough in them, then you'll always be forcing yourself on them. That's an ulterior motive. What we want is an ultimate motive. The ultimate motive is to get Jesus, to, to, for them to see him, for them to, him to be revealed, for the Holy Spirit to speak to them, for them to realize who he is. That's an ultimate motive, and we're always working towards it. And so what, I love this little phrase here. I'm going to give it to you. I didn't write it down on your notes, but it was, it's, it's this. We don't love our neighbors to convert them. We love our neighbors because we are converted. <laughs> we don't love our neighbors to convert them. We love our neighbors because we are converted. Is, is it the goal of every one of us to, the, to obey the Great Commission and see people give their lives to Jesus? Of course it is. Of course it is. But we're going to make this community a good one because of who we are as his people, regardless of what they decide they're going to do. So last few things. Here they are. I'll just give you the fill in the blanks real quick. Number one, live with what you can do today. Don't try to do it all. Don't go home today and <laughs> spend three hours standing in the driveway with your neighbor talking their ear off if you've never talked to them before. Number two, let, your, let time be your friend Make it a marathon, not a sprint. Number three, let, love God first. People who try to do this out of their own ability or their own strength run out of gas. The social gospel doesn't work. The real gospel has caring for your neighbor embedded in it. Number four, listen to them and to the Holy Spirit who will give you the words to say. Because at the end of the story, 
when Jesus is telling the story of the Good Samaritan to the expert in the, law, in the religious law, when he says, who is my neighbor? The response of Jesus is, let me tell you a story. And he tells a tale about a Samaritan man who cares for a guy bloodied and beaten in the ditch. Two religious people walk on and don't even give, pay any attention to him. Jesus is making a point. He's saying, look, you've got to be like this Samaritan who cared for this man and loved him even though he was on the other side of the cultural wall. This is who we are as God's people. But the question that the man asks is the wrong question. It's not who is my neighbor. We're not dividing up who, who am I supposed to be neighborly to. The question you and I have to answer is, what kind of neighbor am I? It's not who is my neighbor. It's what kind of neighbor am I going to be? Now we're going to, I just want you to put your stuff aside and we're going to receive communion here in our last few moments together. And I want you to take those communion elements out of the back of your seat right there and I want you to just hold them. Just hold steady for a minute. Band's coming up. Going to lead us for in, a, in one song and then we're going to go. We practice open communion here at One Chapel, which means if you love Christ and you want to serve him, you, you follow him, we want you to participate. You don't have to feel pressured, but, but we do this because it's, it centers us. It focuses our mind on who we are and what, what we're all about. Christ died for our sins. He gave his body and spilled his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. That is a, that is a, that is a focal point for what we believe, and it guides all of our actions. But let, let me pause here and just ask you to think about who was at the table with Jesus. Close your eyes and think about who was at the table with Christ at the Last Supper. Peter, the denier. Thomas, the doubter. James and John, sons of thunder, really judgmental. Judas, the betrayer. They were all sitting there at the table. Jesus had invited them. I wonder if you would invite people to the table. Jesus has all the provision you need to share your life with others. He has all of the provision that you are going to require to take that step into your neighbor's life. He has all that you need. You might say to Pastor, you don't, you don't understand. You don't, you don't know where my life's such a mess. You don't want me reaching out to my neighbors. It's not true. The gospel of Jesus Christ is having its work in you now, here in this moment, forgiving all your sins, healing all your hurts, and putting you, centering you, refocusing you, reorienting your life around the cross. That's what's happening to you today if you will let it. Father, help us to reorient everything around this idea. Remembering you, what you've done. Giving your life for us so that we could know you and receive from you. And reorienting our life around the cross through which we see everything. Help us. Show us. Reveal to us.
who you are and who our neighbors are. In Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for Jesus. <laughs> the provision for our sin and our failure and our foolishness. Thank you for wiping our hearts clean and wiping our minds clean from every act that leads to death. And Lord Jesus, we want to love you with all that is within us. We want to surrender everything to you. Our hearts, our mind, our soul, our strength. And Lord, we want to love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, during this last quarter of the year, as we live among our community, Lord, would you teach us, train us how to be the people of God, how to care for people, how to love them in a greater way. Lord, we thank you for this. Make us all that you want to be as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.